Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution and increasingly in the service of finding a way through to a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. And my guest this week is someone who is working at the very leading edge of finding out what the generations that come after my generation need from us who are older, how we can give them the tools to live through the death of the old system and the birth of the new one, without feeling like we're dumping everything on their heads and leaving them to do it alone. Zineb Mui is the co-founder of two charitable organisations, The Weaving Lab and Youth by Youth. And the latter is a movement radically to reimagine the future of education with the goal of accelerating the process of young people influencing, designing and transforming their own educations. The Weaving Lab is a global community of practice with the mission of advancing the field of weaving, understood as the practice of interconnecting ideas, people, projects, organisations, places and ecologies to support systems change. And both of these are absolutely embedded in the concepts of emergence, of systemic change, of finding ways that we can be part of that systemic change while unpicking the layers upon layers of ways that it happened in the first place and while envisioning something new. And in all of this, Zineb is also a PhD candidate in anthropology and social change at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where she's designing a project that collaboratively explores the question How might we facilitate a planetary transition towards systems that serve all life? I truly cannot imagine a better and more inspiring topic of study than that. And as you'll hear in the podcast, Zineb is approaching it with the full panoply of systemic change thinking and the ways that we can facilitate emergence. And just before we head into that, I want to dedicate this episode to Charlie, who will know who he is. I was at the Great Green Gathering the week before we record this, which is an event, for those of you who don't know, in Chepstow in Wales, with several thousand people as far as I could tell. And it more or less does what it says on the tin, and I was there to talk about Thrutopia and lead some shamanic work. And... A lady called Angie came up to me afterwards and said that she listened to the podcast, so hello Angie, and that she had shared it with a 24-year-old young man called Charlie, who sent the most touching and moving WhatsApp message as a result. Charlie, it was a delight to read. So this episode is for you, because it's all about your generation and how those of us who are older can be your allies, provide the support and the tools 
and everything that we possibly can to help birth the new reality that will make life worth living for you and your children and your children's children and all of the generations on down the line. And so, with that in mind, people of the podcast, please do welcome Zineb Mui. Zineb, welcome to Accidental Gods and thank you for making the time after what sounded like quite an exciting global adventure. How are you this amazing and beautiful day? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here uh, and have one of the conversations um, on things that matter, uh, which is uh, always a pleasure. Thank you. So you do a lot of things and you are really facilitating change in the world. And before we look at Youth by Youth, which is how I came to know of you, I would be really interested if we could explore how Zineb came to be the person doing a PhD looking at facilitating planetary transition, because I'm only slightly very, very close <laughs> that you get to do a PhD in that. It feels feels amazing. So tell us a little bit about how that came about and then where you're going with it. Mm, for sure. So the idea of the PhD, to be honest, is because I had been working um, in social change for a while. Initially, I had gotten my master's in international development, looking at the role of education in economic and political development, and worked in the education innovation space, meeting uh, education innovators from around the world, which was both a thrilling experience and a little bit of a frustrating experience because I started to realize that what was happening in this space was the kind of discourses that were taking place had been the same one for decades <laughs> at this point, and that the change that we were talking about wasn't actually happening. Right. I also started to realize that the international development sector was not exactly what I thought it was, and that the notions of progress and development that uh, were being hailed as something that other countries needed to beneficiate from uh, were often harming in ways to actually implement exploitative capitalist practices into developing countries. And so looking at like, for instance, so like the sustainable development goals and the idea of like spreading education around the world. Mm. I had worked in Morocco uh, for a few years and I had gotten kind of a shock that people who weren't receiving an education at all often were still capable of thinking on their own, where people who had received the basic education needed to be told everything, like every single thing to be able to do it. They were in a full uh, control mode, wow. which to me was a, a huge shock. Um, and I started really questioning, uh, what am I doing in this development space wherein I'm trying to do good and perhaps I'm contributing to something that I don't want to be a part of. And uh, at this point, yeah, I, I started wanting to really go deep into um, the theory of social change. So just before we look at that, I'd really like to unpick this idea that the more educated people become, the less able they are to think, which has just uh, fused lots of the wires in my head because in my previous, previous, previous life, I was a vet, but I was a clinical anaesthetist at the University of Cambridge. So we taught the students how to do the stuff that kept animals alive. And I remember vividly, we'd get them for two weeks at a time, which was a terrifyingly short time to teach them everything they needed to know about anesthesia. But actually, the first 10 days were spent teaching them to think. Because what you'd get was highly, to get to be a veterinary student, you know, you'd done an awful lot of 
studying and education, but they were, they were very, very good at regurgitating, you know, the third sentence of paragraph 14 on page 783 of their notes, mm. but they were completely incapable of joining that up with sentence 14, paragraph 783 of their notes to make a third fact that actually arose from both of them. And I thought that this was just because veterinary students had been hyper-educated to the point where they, they didn't dare think because <laughs> thinking didn't pass exams. But what I'm hearing from you is, that it happens some ways down the line from that. Can you just tell us a little bit more about how you saw that and, and then what you're able to do with it? Yeah, uh, so what I noticed is it's actually dependent on the kind of education system that a country decides to have. And a lot of the time, uh, there tends to be an approach that is around control, where the idea behind education is actually, well, the metallogic of education is actually supplying the economy with the next generations of workers. And when you have economies that are not as developed, you want workers that are easily controllable in some ways. So you end up designing systems where the idea is to make people follow instructions. That's the main reasoning behind it, uh, which which then means that you end up having, uh, like killing people's ability to think on their own, uh, which I think tends to happen quite often uh, in education systems. Is this deliberate, do you think? I think so, yeah. Is, it, is this a conscious choice on people's thought? I, it, I think it's both conscious and unconscious. Uh, I think if the metallogic of education is uh, serving the economy, then necessarily you're not serving the people or their communities. So although it might not be conscious in the way that you're thinking, how do we make them not think on their own? If the goal is to have a certain way of like... Mm, having workers that follow instructions, then it's going to be baked in the education. Um, I've also yeah, seen many studies that show that when governments are shown that certain uh, disciplines might actually uh, induce students to think less on their own, they don't stop <laughs> having those disciplines being implemented in their education systems. Uh, they tend to double down. Uh, so it also depends where we're talking about, but that that was a big realization for me who wanted, who was very like adamant about access to education and quality of education and development and all that, realizing how, how destructive it is in certain places and how much by imposing a logic of one truth, which happens when you have set curricula, when you have testing and grading, it actually brings people to think there's only one truth and one dominant system. Um, that is valid, uh, which which means obviously that other ways of thinking and being aren't being promoted by spreading traditional education systems in, around the world. And I also noticed that a lot of the time it brings, especially in rural areas uh, in developing countries, it creates urban poverty. So you have people who had land and who had ancestral knowledge of how to tend to the land. Um, and then you bring education and you hail education as the main thing that they need to do. And then all of a sudden they're educated, but they don't know how to tend their land anymore. They don't have any relationships to their communities anymore. And um, they live for cities and end up in urban slums. Um, so it's also really being able to look at the fact that as much as education is important, the way that we've been elevating it hasn't been serving the people that it's meant to be serving. Okay. Gosh, that feels. This feels like we could do the entire podcast <laughs> just on this. But let's let's take swerve back into having made that discovery and and realizing that this is not how you want to continue with your world. What brought you to where you are now, and and such an extraordinarily broad, but 
fascinating PhD topic. You could spend the rest of your life <laughs> answering that question. So I'm curious as to how you picked it. And then how are you narrowing it down to something that you can begin to answer without it just exploding your head? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think the, the first thing for me was actually realizing that the academic sector um, was also <laughs> to be challenged <laughs> uh, because a lot of it, uh, and when I start looking at PhDs, started looking at like traditional big universities and kind of noticed that a lot of the time the goal is to add kind of like a little bit of knowledge into a huge body of knowledge instead of actually integrating what we know in order that we can use it in a way that's useful to people on the ground. And the reason why I wanted to do it was because I wanted to bridge my the theory and practice of social change in a way that was useful in my own work, but also in a way that could be shared with others in a useful way. So I found very luckily uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies, which uses um, alternative ways of learning and being and also challenges the traditional academic models um, and proposed to do a non-narrow question, an integrative question, and to do my, my PhD in a collaborative way. Yeah. So the way that I'm doing it is that I'm asking uh basic wide questions and then sub questions behind it and then put like actionable what I'm calling actionable artifacts um, like toolkits for how to entangle yourself from capitalism or from the logic of the state um, but then inviting anyone to actually participate in it uh, so my goal is truly like how do we integrate what we know in a way that's useful to us in the time of a planetary transition since I guess the basic hypothesis is that we are in a time of planetary transition and we're going to need to weave ourselves together and weave our efforts uh, in a way that, that's practical and actionable, not, not for the purpose of adding knowledge to the huge body of knowledge we already have. Yes, and I heard you on the Youth by Youth video, and we'll get to that later, saying that there was a Chinese proverb that said if you don't change direction, you end up getting to where you were going, Yeah, <laughs> um, which is... And and exactly, it seems as if so much of academic pursuit is about edging everybody millimetre by millimetre along exactly the same path. And so you've deliberately moved aside from that. Mm -hmm. How far through with this project are you now? I'm, I'm still early in my process, but I am getting very close to making it public and starting to invite collaboration. Okay, so do we, if you need collaborators, we could put that out on the podcast. Oh, I would love that. Point, because <laughs> a toolkit at, for untangling ourselves from capitalism sounds like the whole world needs this at the moment. <laughs> so, but we obviously got to refine it. That would be fantastic. Yay. Was it hard to find supervisors who both understood the need for what you were doing and the process that you were undertaking as a relatively non-linear academic process? Mm. Uh, I think I actually got really lucky uh, in that way because that's also why I didn't go for traditional university models. I, I chose a university that was already challenging the ways uh, of learning and being and what academia could be and how academia could serve. And so I found myself very quickly in an environment where I felt I could challenge this without sounding crazy. Um, so I have to say the first time I, I presented what my idea was and the thesis behind it and the collaborative model, I was uh, shaky uh, because I, I was thinking they're going to tell me a thesis looks like this, like this is this and this and this and this is the linear format and you're supposed to follow it. And I had done absolutely none of that. I was saying it, we need to 
challenge linear ways of thinking, and we can't do that with linear formats. Yeah. Uh, we also know that PhD thesis, which you imagine a thesis takes about seven years to write. On average, the number of people who read a thesis is like seven people for <laughs> for seven years of work. And you're like, oh, maybe the format doesn't work, you know? <laughs> like, maybe that's what we're getting from uh, statistics like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so when I got to present it, my, my advisors really got it. Like from the get go, they got it. Yay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm honestly very lucky in that regard and would, would highly recommend. That's why I of, often recommend to young people don't choose the university, choose the program, choose the advisors, uh, choose what is it that you want to learn and how you want to learn it, as opposed to the big names, um, which, I mean, sometimes the big names can advance you professionally and can be useful. Uh, but getting to learn the way you want to learn and actually having a learning experience that's valuable for you is is invaluable <laughs> yeah and we are in the time of transition the big names might in the past have been good at advancing your career but given the rate of change that we're in at the moment my suspicion is that careers are really not going to be a thing hmm. 5 10 15 years from now not in the way that we think of them now we had john helfand on a little while ago who's who's a very different educator but still has similar ideas to you who pointed out that the process of getting a PhD was learning more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing <laughs> yes. and that, that isn't it's not useful anymore mm -mm. it's it, in the world that we're in so it sounds as if you've landed in a very exciting thriving place and that the project will come back for another podcast definitely in a, in a few years time when you're further <laughs> into it and discover where you've got to but in the meantime you and Valentino set up Youth by Youth right in the middle of lockdown and COVID and all of those things. And it seems as if this is aiming to get over the hump whereby, as far as I can tell, we are gaslighting everybody under the age of mm. 30 with this idea that there are careers and that this linear model of learning how to fit yourselves into a capitalist economy is the way forward mm -hmm. because it isn't anymore. Capitalism is falling apart. So how did that come about? Tell us more about what it is and how the two of you got together to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as I mentioned, I was working in a bit more of like traditional setups and foundations in the education sector. Um, and as much as I think I met some extraordinary people doing extraordinary things, um, I felt like education innovations were only um, at the margins uh, and not actually affecting the mainstream of education systems in a way that the transformation of education could happen. And uh, when COVID started, I got extraordinarily mad, <laughs> I think, about the reaction that governments had on just not listening to what young people needed. We were going through an extreme crisis. And to me, that was kind of like a mirror of the future crisis we were going to be having in the future. And showing their reaction was command and control. You do this now, you go here now, now it's online things. And no care about mental health, no care about their personal experiences of going through such a complicated crisis for so many people and not asking them along the way what would serve them at any point in time. And, and I think that kind of like slapped me into realizing that the same way any system changes because the people in that system ask, demand and start creating the change inside, that education needed young people to be the ones to lead that transformation. That there was no transformation possible without the main population of education system 
actually rising up and saying, we demand and can do some things different. So the idea initially was like, reclaim your education. Um, because as much as you might not be able to choose your school system, your education will always be yours. Uh, education is a lifetime process. Learning is a lifetime, lifelong process. Uh, and, and so even if schooling might not be uh, something you get to decide on, um, you, your education is always yours. Uh, and then the, the, so that was the initial um, kind of uh, idea behind it and also like how to link young people in, uh, worldwide so that we can start a movement towards educational transformation. And at the time I was uh, with both Valentina uh, and Jessica Spencer-Keys and uh, the three of us had had this like traditional way of working with education systems and wanted to try new ways of doing things. So we kind of created this pedagogical approach uh, which is essentially is a three-step process. What is, what if, and what now? Uh, so moving from sense-making and meaning-making, where you really get into understanding the root causes behind some of the issues that we're seeing, moving into what if, which is radical reimagination. So being able to actually imagine different ways of being and doing and living on earth, ways that are actually beautiful and harmonious and playful and joyful, um, and then what now is actually how do you bridge where we are with where we want to go in like this first step and going towards both personal action and collective action, centering youth solidarity as well as intergenerational ways of working. Because um, I also kind of noticed there is this a little bit of a myth behind young people are going to save us. Oh, this is this, I think this generation is absolutely amazing. Gen Z's really are. But at the same time, they shouldn't have the weight of... Uh, all of the mistakes of generations before. Uh, it is meant to be intergenerational where we have an allyship model um, and create relationships between elders and young people in a way that can support young people going forward. Wow. This just sounds utterly groundbreaking. And yes, absolutely, as one of the older generation, heaven knows, whatever we can do to help. And that's, again, it's down to asking everybody what their input can be and needs to be and is. So... Let me guess, three of you sat down and had these conversations, or you didn't sit down, you did it online because COVID, you weren't allowed to sit down with people. How, <laughs> yes. had, you, how had you known each other previously? How did you come together? So initially we were both with traditional education institutions. Um, I was in Qatar, Valentina was in Washington, and Jessica was in London. Um, and we had met in Washington with the Brookings Institute on a study around mapping uh, global education innovations around the world. Uh, on basically the role of education in leapfrogging change. And we also met through the Weaving Lab, uh, which is another organization Anson and I uh, are co-founders of um, and got a chance to, to work on for a few years with a group of fantastic co-founders. We're 16 co-founders in, in 12 countries. So that's also an interesting uh, structure. Fantastic. And yeah, we were, I guess, three younger women realizing a lot of the same things at the same time and, and feeling like, honestly, soul sisters, where um, we felt a sense that we were supposed to do something together. Uh, so yes. that <laughs> propelled us into that path. So 16 co-founders in 12 countries of the Weaving Lab. I'm just really curious, as a starter, how did you co-found? What were the ways that you found to connect? Again, I'm assuming online because you're spread out geographically, so that you could mm -hmm. keep everybody in the room keep everybody having input. 16 sounds a little bit more than the kind of comfortable number that people tend to revolve around, which is 12, but not so much 
bigger, that it's impossible. Were you using some of the more modern social technologies like sociocracy or dragon dreaming? Or did you evolve something that just worked for you? And if so, what was it? Mm. So initially, uh, the Weaving Lab, uh, I think, was an idea that was uh, incubated within uh, Ashoka initially, uh, which is a, a social enterprise um, that kind of pioneered the idea of like social entrepreneurship um, and whatnot. And uh, the idea was that a lot of the social entrepreneurs that were part of that community uh, felt this strong sense that they were part of the same community of social entrepreneurs, but at the same time didn't really know how to weave their work together in a way that would create that kind of momentum that we were seeking to make happen in order for social change to be accelerated. Uh, so the idea behind the Weaving Lab was how do we interconnect people, places, and projects in a way that creates a momentum towards social change. Um, and so because that was the idea, the point was not like, oh, we're, um, we need to create like big projects where everyone needs to know everything about everything, but really how do we create a global community of practice that enables the, the practice of weaving, which I can, I can talk uh, more about and explain a bit more in detail because I'm assuming your listener might not be uh, familiar with it, towards social change. Um, so that, that, was, that was really the, the logic behind it, creating a, community, a global community of practice to enable the interconnection of um, people, projects and places. Okay, people, projects and places. We're getting so many potential titles for this <laughs> podcast. So, yes, say something else about the weaving then. Are we talking actual weaving of actual fabric or are we talking social weaving or you're meaning something both? Tell us more about that. Yeah, we're, we're meaning social weaving. So I think the best way I've started, because weaving is, is truly like a, a complex practice. It's a how do we move out of the logic of separation, which our world is currently based on, from a personal level, like within yourself, we tend to separate mind and body or uh, mind, body, heart, soul. All those things tend to be actually separated in the way that we understand them, as well as in the way that we work with one another, in the way that we break down different systems. We talk about education and health and not understanding that actually all those things are interconnected in, in a much deeper way. Uh, so the practice of weaving is how do we move out of the logic of separation into a logic of interconnection, whereby we recover our ability to see the connection between things and make them work in a way to create what we call universal well-being, where the dimensions are both uh, personal, societal, uh, organizational, um, and whatnot. So tell us a little bit about the weaving lab and, and how this weaving actually works, because it sounds as if this is really quite radical and revolutionary. And I had managed not to hear about it before, which is a huge gap. <laughs> and I can feel several podcasts arising out of this. But just tell us how it works and how you have seen it work. Mm, certainly. Um, so because weaving is a complex practice, uh, there's not one way that it works. There's as many ways of weaving as there are weavers. Uh, which is why the idea behind the Weaving Lab is creating a community of practice where we share our different methods. Uh, so for some, it's going to be facilitation methods where the idea is how do you create um, deep connection between people in a very like fast way. For some, it's how to create multi-stakeholder collaborations in order to create a social change dynamic within the place. So each uh, each weaver has actually its, its own um, way of weaving, but ultimately, what we believe is that this is a practice where we can learn from one another and enable ourselves 
to see how social change is being pioneered in a different way, putting interconnection at the center uh, towards uh, a, a thriving world, essentially, uh, with the idea that we need to collaborate in a systemic manner um, in order for social change to happen. So I, I think I actually have lots of potential people who, who I think would be fantastic uh, people to interview for your podcast. Um, I'm pioneering uh, extraordinary ways of, of making social change happen by creating, uh, some are creating eco-villages, some are creating bioregional, um, like a bioregional approach in, in Europe. Yeah, lots, lots of different ways of making that happen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So future podcast For sure. Um, because this feels like, I, I'm really curious. So let's just keep it personal to you and the three of you who then went on to create Youth by Youth. How... How logistically do you work systemically? Because a lot of people listening have been inculcated in the educational system that gets us to think linearly. Mm -hmm. And learning to think systemically is not something that we do automatically. We have to actually bring ourselves around to it. So can you just walk us through the steps of how systemic thinking feels to you and then how you began to implement it to create youth by youth? Mm, that's an excellent question. So I think there's several dimensions when we think about systems change. It's the first one, especially with youth by youth, was how do we make ourselves think systemically uh, so that we can make the kind of change we want to make happen. The second was actually because we're creating a community of young people and adult allies that are thinking about how to transform education, it's how each person can carry the logic behind systems in order for that, um, for them, themselves to be to have to be empowered uh, with uh, the, the logic behind systems thinking. So how to teach systems thinking to a 14-year-old is, is often how I would think about it. Uh, and there are certain principles around systems thinking that are actually quite simple that it doesn't need to be complicated rather I should say it is complex but but it doesn't have to be complicated and the first thing is is actually for us Attitude by Youth was adopting uh, an emergent approach uh, which means that as much as we set up programs as much as we believe in, in the importance of having uh, concrete concrete ways that we connect young people with one another it's also being able to shift when we sense that the wind is going in a different direction in order to be able to seize the different opportunities that are in front of us and also to center youth's voices, which means that if a young person or community proposes something new, it's not because we were co-founders or because we're running the organization one way or another that we feel like we have the sole decision-making ability at all. It was actually quite complex to think, how do we empower young people more and more to see that Youth by Youth is not an organization that is run by people. It's a community of people that runs the organization. So the, and it's not even uh, an organization. It's, a, it's trying to build uh, the conditions for social change to happen. It's to build a movement where youth solidarity can happen. And within our pedagogy itself, we have to be very clear around how do we teach root cause analysis and uh, really be able to untangle what we think are sometimes like fast solution because a lot of activism is actually quite reactive where you see a problem and then you say, oh, young people, here's a problem. What would you do to solve it? And then they go solve it, you know? And a lot of it is like, or not even just young people, everyone has this kind of like action reaction. 
Um, and what we understand with social, like with systems change is that it's slightly more complex than that. You have to be able to unpeel the layers and be able to see why is this happening and why do I care about it? What's my unique role in being able to answer a, a certain challenge? And so uh, the way we do that is that young people themselves have their own learning questions that they carry and then we help them with their own unique way that they want to address something to unpeel those layers. Um, and yeah, there, <laughs> there's lots of ways that we do that in groups and smaller groups and pairs and buddies um, so that th that process can happen collectively. Brilliant. So let's just cover some foundational questions and then I'd really like to unpick the process and how it's working. Because you talk about young people as if you weren't one of them. And from the perspective of my age, you definitely are. <laughs> so um, what, what are the kind of age bands that define the generations for you and for them? Let's start with that. So I would be a boomer definitely because mm. I was born before 1964, I think is the cutoff for that. How do you, if you had to, and I realise these are very flexible, but roughly where would you cite yourself in the age spectrum? Mm. So I'm, a, I guess, millennial, um, 32. I just I just celebrated my, 30, my 32nd birthday. But Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. What does millennial mean for you? Does the millennial mean somebody then who was born in the years leading up to the millennium, obviously, because you were born then in the yeah. in 1990, if I've done the arithmetic right? It's not so much that. I, I personally don't really even use the concept of generations that much. Uh, to me, it's more like who's capable, who who is in an ally position where your idea is like, how do you support um, others doing this kind of work because you've done it before versus not having had that experience. Okay. Uh, so with youth by youth, our, our age range is usually 15 to 25, although, and 15 is also because uh, under that you need lots of like parental consent and it starts getting very complicated when you do work online. Uh, otherwise, I would honestly go even lower. There's no, for me, there's no age for activism. <laughs> and, and similarly, 25, we go, uh, it really also depends on how much opportunities young people have had in the future, uh, for in, the, in their past, I mean especially considering uh, yeah, different access to education that they might have had or not. Um, so some people who might be 24 can already be considered allies because they've run organizations um, and they've done a lot of work that they can impart on others versus uh, young people who are new to their activism journey. Uh, but as you mentioned, yes, we are <laughs> all young people working together. It's just in what is our role within um within that structure uh, might differ. But the way that I think about it is almost like, what have you had access to in your education? So for instance, in my education, we've never talked about climate change. We weren't aware of this kind of social issue. So I feel like I've learned a lot of things and that unlearned a lot of things. Whereas for Gen Z, they learned those things, the same things that I might have learned, but at the same time as they've learned about all the social chaos that we're currently going through, which often has created in them a little bit of a almost like too antithetical thing that don't marry and create a form of absurdity that makes them want to learn more about how this absurd thing where you're telling us how do we be successful at the same time as you're telling us here this way of being successful has is ruining and currently yeah is ruining the planet and might mean that you might not have a very happy future so they're trying to reconcile that very early so that's more it's more where i draw the generational gap uh than age per se and as we get more authoritarian 
governments around the world who decide that you're not allowed to teach things like climate change anymore because it's ideological and you mustn't teach it, then that's also going to affect young people's education. But it seems to me that however we define the generations, the generations that have grown up with broadband as part of their life, where you have access to the whole of the world's knowledge, insofar as you are able to yeah. actually get to it and you don't live somewhere where it's it's very constrained, then self-education and networks and educational connected networks are going to be every bit as important as, as what they teach you in school. Because if what you learn online at home is very different to what they're teaching you at school, just the sheer number of hours that you spend online at home are going to outweigh the amount of time you spend in the classroom and that's going to be more important. Are you finding those dichotomies arising in the young people that you're connecting with yet? And and if so, how? Absolutely. Uh, so that that's also why I was mentioning earlier that we advocate for reclaiming your education, that even if you can't control what's happening in your school, you have access to the whole of information um, out there and actually can be very intentional about what you seek out online. Um, and so there's, there's definitely the sense that we're at this point where... I think a lot of people are, are losing trust in their government ability to actually acknowledge that we are in a moment of crisis and acknowledge that there's a collapse that is slowly rising or not. I wouldn't necessarily call it a collapse, maybe like civilizational bet is more like it. And instead of actually accompanying that bet with grace and with the, a little bit of, oh, what have we learned from this and what can come out of it? Like, it's like an old person refusing to die, you know? Yeah. It's just like, no, yeah. I will live yeah, forever. Yeah. We're going to stick it on life support um, and pour all of the planetary resources <laughs> into keeping this dying thing going instead of allowing something new to grow. Exactly, exactly. Uh, which which is why I also work a lot with different organizations that are putting the kind of knowledge that is needed uh, online. So I also work with an organization called Curriculums for Life, where the idea there is to provide simple curriculum both for self-directed learners and for teachers who want to start teaching new things around things that are missing from school with the idea to create better relationships with oneself, with each other, with our places and the planet. Uh, so there it's, it's, I'll give you some example of the kind of curriculums we're currently creating, which is learning for life. So all the things around learning and how to learn and why we learn and why it matters and learning from failures and all the things that tend to be missing, hmm. uh, sense-making. So how do we make sense of the world? How do we uh, trust our intuitions, uh, emotional intelligence, all the things that, how to become an adult. So how to pay your taxes, how to pay your bills, <laughs> all those things that aren't covered and then you're thrown in the world and, and have to figure out how to do. We try to actually um, see how do, to make those kind of curriculums available, not by necessarily recreating it, but actually creating what already exists online in a way that makes it more easily navigatable. I had on my pad, in capital letters with several question marks, sense-making. And I think you're answering this mm. because it seems obviously that the more access we have to deliberate disinformation online, the harder it becomes to decide what we can actually trust. So Curriculums for Life sounds to me like a project that is deliberately, first of all, curating stuff that you can trust, and then teaching the skills of how to make sense. Can you just talk us a little bit more through how people do that? Or would it be better for young people who are listening to just go to Curriculums for Life, sign up to that and, and get help with their sense making that way? 
so I think that project is going to become available online in a few months. It's still in the works. So, uh, but we're prototyping um, with young people at the moment. So every time that we create a lesson, we prototype it with young people and we find it um, to make sure that they've had a say in the process as well. Um, for sense making itself, uh, I think there, there's a, a, a couple of things that I want to say about it. The first one being that, and I think that's something that I've heard from another uh, person in your podcast, which is we can't make sense of the world uh, by dividing disciplines. Um, if if we see, like, if we put everything in little boxes, we can never make sense of the complexity of how they interact with one another. Um, so how do we recover that ability to actually understand what is happening in a complex world um, is something that uh, so, so a, a lot of interesting people are currently working on and I think we're still finding out ourselves how to do it. So I feel like in a lot of ways, as I'm trying new ways to make sense of what's happening, I, I'm able to teach them. <laughs> uh, and that's also where, you know, like I feel like the, the theory and the practice bridges because I'm, I often look at uh, my PhD research and try to look at different things that way and then teach it through Youth by Youth or Curriculum for Life uh, or the Weaving Lab and like all those things actually end up interconnecting because again there's no point in separating work from life from research all those things are one and at the end of the day I see myself as someone who is trying to support uh, both the death uh, of a world or of a civilization that no longer serves us and the birth of a new civilization where we can live in harmony and stop destroying uh, so much of um, the richness of the life that surrounds us. Um, and I don't want the parts of my life to be separate in that direction. I, they need to be integrated. Yeah, you are, you are li the living embodiment of what it is to be an emergent <laughs> processor, to live in an emergent process and, and to help accelerate it. This is so exciting. I Just fantastic. So there's so many things that I would like to drill into, and I suspect that the answer for most of them is we're still in the process of working this out. So, for instance, I have written quite a while back, how do we teach root cause analysis? How, how are we going to teach that? How are you beginning to teach root cause analysis and then help young people to apply that capacity in a very rapidly changing system? circumstance of systemic collapse, which is what we're in at the moment, in order that we can also then facilitate mm. the growth of a different system. And I imagine, because I get overwhelmed thinking about this quite a lot, that this is quite overwhelming, but it seems to me that you're one of those people who isn't letting the overwhelm weigh you down. You've got little anchors in the emergent future. So, so I would really like to look at that emergent future, and I'm aware of the time. But let's just have a little bit about how do you teach root cause analysis? I'm really interested in that one. I think that one kind of depends on the different ages and how deep can we go. But I, I'm just going to give you one example of the way we teach it, which is uh, it's called the five why exercise, um, which essentially means you look at a problem and then you ask, why is this happening? And then why is this happening? Right. Why is five times. Five times until you try to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> uh, and there's, there's simple exercises like that that people can do to be able to see that when you think you've gotten it, there's a layer deeper. Uh, and, and so as much as 
like we teach it sometimes or with people with their own learning questions, try to go and unpeel those layers. There's also a stance that I think really matters when we do this work. And it's the the humility stance that you haven't gotten it ever. You understand at some point. And then I, like, I love the Maya Angelou quote, uh, do as best as you know, and when you know better, do better. Yeah. It's it's so simple, but at the same time, it's just being able to not have an arrogant stance and be able to say, yes, we're doing this work and we're finding out new things and we can look at the origins. That's also another exercise is when you look at, say, an issue that of concern and then it's it's uh, within a certain system. Let's say it's within the education system or within the capitalist system. Uh, we try to say, go back to the origins of that system. How did the system actually emerge? why did it start? How did it start? And what does that tell you about the underlying intentions it carries? Um, So for instance, with capitalism, uh, I found out that one of the first corporations or the first corporations ever be created was a British corporation that was meant to essentially uh, exploit India. That was the whole point of the creation of corporations, the first corporations that was ever created. And the DNA of that origin is carried in capitalism, where the imperialist structure behind it and the exploitative structure can be read in its origins. Okay, this is a rabbit hole I'd really like to explore with you, because it seems to me that our capacity to go back then depends on our education. So if we didn't have history books of some sort, we we don't necessarily have to go through school history texts, but historical records. We wouldn't know that, for instance, the Dutch East India Company existed or whatever it was that that was the first company that was explicitly designed. And and that the whole concept in Western Europe of the removal of people from the land and the enclosures and bringing them into cities was to design poverty, to to make it so they couldn't grow their mm-hmm. own food because then they have to work and then you can make them work for less. And, and then you describe this still happening all around the world where people are basically educated off the land and then they don't have the capacity to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. And yet, partly because Rome was my obsession for about 10 years, I know that if we go back to Roman times, you know, they, they had, they charged interest on loans, they had cumulative capital, they had all of the commodification of land, labour and property that we talk about now as being the origin of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they didn't invent it. I just haven't gone back that much further to look at how did Rome discover the commodification of land, labour and property in order to then spread it so efficiently around <laughs> what was then the known world so that everybody decided this was the model. Because it seems to me one of my theses is that we are actually in the dying days of the Roman Empire. It's just that we don't always stretch back that Mm -hmm. far. But if we go back before that, before that, before that, there must have been a time where a group of people, possibly even one person, was so traumatized and so dissociated from the web of life that the way of living connected to it became unappealing or impossible. And this whole cycle of exploitation and destruction and separation was kicked off and and dragged people in the whole concept of the Wetika or the Wendigo, that it's a kind of almost like a an infectious virus. Mm. And I don't suppose we're ever going to be able to go far enough back to know when that happened or how or why. So in your five whys, 
assuming you end up with 555 wives, going back all the way to, I don't know, 10, 15, 20,000 years ago, <laughs> yes. to something that, that we'll never be able to find out. Then presumably you come forward to, so we've uncovered, 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 uncovered a lot of wise, and we get to what is, which was one of your three, what if, what is. Then how do you move forward? How do you take the historical perspective and allow you to break out of that linear narrative into something different? Thanks, Menda, for, for such an interesting question. I think I want to go back to one thing before I answer it, which is it's very interesting to this, I actually also believe <laughs> we're at this like Roman collapse uh, replaying itself. But it, it's interesting to look at like our 500 year band of this new modern civilization um, or and then understand it's like birth and collapse. And then also how does that inscribe itself in like a, a spiral of birth and death of different civilizations? So being able to yeah, go both in our trench, like really understand what's happening here, as well as the entire historical perspective. Um, and as you say, I think as much as we can learn about it, there's also the sense that there's more that we'll never know compared to what we're capable of knowing about it. Uh, so at the same time as history really informs us and like makes something grow in us where we become part of a lineage, uh, both civilizationally and throughout human history, we see it like it's it's how do you learn to see yourself as yourself an emergent process of what wants to be born i've read recently someone who's and i'm gonna not gonna remember the name of the author but i'll send it to you after who says well we belong to what we long for oh. so it's almost like finding within yourself both like i almost imagine myself as like a flower on earth okay how does it want to be expressed what is it that you uniquely are there to bring into this earth at the same time as you're looking at like my my understanding of it is like the more we long and that's why radical reimagination is also a big part of it is the more we're capable of imagining it and feeling it and then being it the more the easier it becomes to actually make it come to life because you are it uh, you're no longer dissociated from it there's so many exciting things here I do want to come back to youth by youth very quickly, but just radical reimagination. Because from a shamanic perspective, if we can imagine something to the point where we can feel it at a core level, then our energy kind of hones in on that and it's much more likely to arise, which is one of the reasons I get really cross with people writing dystopian futures, because you don't need to take people's imaginations and, and mm. throw them forward to how bad it could be. We all know that. We don't need to rehearse it. With Youth by Youth, in bringing it into being, how much of that was your process of radical reimagination? Did you, the three of you, sit in your COVID-separated mm. little bunkers and, <laughs> and, and undergo radical reimagination? Was that how it arose? Partly, yes. <laughs> we did lots of radical reimagination exercises ourselves and we did and do have a tendency to try on our own before um, suggesting like other ways of, of uh, doing things and imagining with our young people. Uh, so we imagine kind of like different exercises, like headlines of the future uh, of how does that actually emerge? But to me, as much as there's, there's two dimensions to radical reimagination, there's the future dreaming and there's the 
being it right now and actually being a representation of the future you wish existed. So for that, part of what we do is like, we're truly driven by love and we tell our young people we love them all the time because we really do. Uh, and we created a team of young people that is the core team and then the whole community around it that leads us. But we're, we're very intentional about expressing our care and creating a community of mutual care and of true solidarity that doesn't have to wait for the future to emerge. Uh, we can be that for each other today. Uh, and so being able to practice those ways where you can say in a team, like, I love you. How are you? Like, how are you really? Can you tell me about your life? Taking a half an hour at the beginning of every meeting to hear each other's true like state of being so that we can respond to that. Um, those things that are currently missing because we go into operational optimization. How do we create change? How this, 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 like, like so much of, of the social sector looks like that where we go towards KPI and objectives in that way, but it doesn't actually is it, it doesn't end up being a representation of that future world because it still uses the logic of uh, the world we're trying to undo uh, to create that new world, and I don't think we can do it that way. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. No, I'm sure we can. I'm sure we're right. So let's drill down into how many you said there was a core group of young people in youth by youth, and then expanding numbers. I don't know if you want to share numbers, but can you tell us roughly how many there are? Uh, so we're a team um, of six people in our core team, um, which basically do most of like the program organizing. But then the way we function is that all of our programs, for instance, now we're launching a program, which is called the Global Action Circles. Um, and it's a five-month peer-to-peer uh, learning journey that is led by youth hosts, which go through a little bit of a training and actually decide how they're going to be facilitating that process and end up in groups of between 12 and 14 people, um, intergenerational, but youth-led, <laughs> uh, with between two and four adults and the rest being young people. So for that program, we have 24 youth hosts that are leading the whole process. We give them the principles, the different agendas that they might want to rework, but then they're the one uh, that end up leading a group of um, yeah, 12 to 14 people through a five-month uh, learning journey where, again, everyone comes in with their own learning question and then uses that process to get them from what is to what if to what now. And so they move from question to projects within five months, uh, which they then get to present to our global community uh, because we have an annual learning festival where we usually have between 300 and 500 people uh, who show up. Um, so it's all those like expanding circles, <laughs> essentially, uh, or circles of circles of circles until, until the whole community can actually come together um, and start creating those changes. That's, uh, which all of this has arisen inside of two years. And if you've got two to 300 people who actually show up, then there's easily 10 times that many who, who just don't quite get around to it. That seems always seems to be a kind of core rule of thumb. So this is astonishing. Have you got any anything that you're highlighting as here are aspects of change that we're beginning to see in people's lives or is it too soon for that? So we're seeing where there is a clear drive uh, from young people to be front and centre in their approach. Uh, I'm not sure if it's, it's, it's the, uh, if it's like concrete ways of changing, but 
um, definitely noticing with COVID that the focus on mental health um, has become really, really, really important for many of them. This period was not easy for them at all. Uh, and generally, when you have absurdity within your system of not understanding the world you're being brought into, I think that that can generate uh, a lot of mental health issues, which we're learning as a community, I think, that mental health uh, issues, and I'm putting this <laughs> under quotes, are often a way that there's a, a chaos before rearrangement. Um, and so it's like a, a breakdown before breakthroughs. So really reframing the way um, mental health affects young people to kind of acknowledge one, like it's very normal that there's these mental health issues arising uh, because you're you're living in a time of transition where everything is changing. And so like embracing that as something that might actually teach you a lot and learning to yeah, embrace those, those dark moments as, as signs of how we need to change and how we need to evolve has been a big uh area uh, where, where young people have been doing incredible work. Others are, yeah, uh, climate education, uh, youth-led education transformation, uh, where many of them are, are creating manifestos in their communities or trying to contact the ministers of education uh, to create youth councils in order to create that dynamic uh, of putting young people at the center of those kind of transformations that are needed. I'm realizing that I'm still thinking linearly and everything that I'm hearing from you is is about emergent processes and and people being the change, exactly as you said, it's that old Gandhian thing, but giving young people the tools to enable them mm -hmm. to be part of their communities and to have voices that are heard. And presumably, I am guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the work that you're doing, the integral work and the small group work and the peer-to-peer -peer work, is about giving people, young people, the confidence to then go out into the wider world and go, guys, it's just not working. The old systems that you think, uh, it feels to me we're so much, I don't know if you watched the, the cartoons when you were small, but like Wile E. Coyote has run out across the canyon mm. and, and just is refusing to look down. And there is a 3,000 foot drop. And the person who's going, guys, we're, there is no solid ground underneath us anymore, is not going to be popular unless they can go, there is no solid ground underneath us, but look here, I can help us to fashion a rope and we'll get to the other side and everything will be different. And that what you're doing is giving young people the voice to say, we need to see that the old system is broken. Yeah. And at the same time, you don't have to panic all the old people who've been educated into that old system and don't have the tools to do something different because here we are the young people and we have ideas and you just need to listen to us and things will move forward yeah to me it's almost like we're teaching or supporting them in transforming education because every other system in their life is going to have to transform so that's the one they're currently a part of that needs that change and that they themselves reclaiming that education to gain the skills that they need in order to make all those other changes that are going to be part of their lives. Sometimes I find it like a, a very, um, like a balancing act, like it's a, <laughs> a tight line to, to walk on between acknowledging where there are problems and acknowledging without falling into despair, essentially. Uh, so being able to say like it is and not sugarcoat that things are actually better than we think or like, look, the world, blah, blah, blah. Uh, while at the same time being able to say there's a death and there's a birth. 
And you're in that time, in the middle, for a reason. Find out that reason and then learn (laughs) to be okay with that death and also to find out what it is that you want to bring into the world. That's so, so inspiring. And I love the groundedness of it so that we're not trying to say everything's going to be beautiful. We're just going to say everything's going to be different. And actually, we have no way of knowing exactly how different. So let's explore it together. Exactly. It feels like that's a really clean, clear place to end. It feels, to be honest, as if we've only started the beginning of this conversation. (laughs) I would be very, very glad if you'd come back in about six months and we could continue. I would love that. But as we're heading off out into the world, and I will point everybody at your websites, in the show notes, is there anything else in closing that you'd like to say particularly to the young people listening? Hmm. I think I would say, don't forget you're a co-creator of this world. You're not a victim of it. Um, And you're here. Yeah, you're here. I truly believe you're here for a reason. Um, That we have uh, so much beauty to bring in, as well as rough things that we're going to have to go through. Uh, but if you can find the people you want to go through hard times and good times together, all of it will be uh, more joyful. So surround yourself with love, with joy, with play along the way. And with people who really get it. Yeah. <laughs> who are there at Youth by Youth. Yeah. So, Zineb, thank you so much. This has been such an inspiring and enlightening and emerging conversation. I have loved every moment of it. Thank you very very much. Thank you, Manda. It was a true pleasure chatting with you and I really hope we get another chance very soon. (laughs) And that's it for another week. Huge, huge thanks to Zineb for all that she's doing. Honestly, for most of us, being a PhD candidate is enough. But to be doing that and setting up and running Youth by Youth and still being part of the coordination of the Weaving Lab feels absolutely huge and I don't know how there is time in one life for all of that but I'm enormously glad that there is. So whatever age you are please head over to Youth by Youth and explore the ways that you can become part of this movement, this emergent property of the new life that is being born out of the death of the old one. The more we can let go of everything that we thought we knew to be true and embrace what the moment needs instead of what we'd like to think it needs. The faster we move to the new system and the more likely it will be to flourish. So that's your job for this week, people. The link is in the show notes, but if you don't feel like going there, it's youthbyyouth.com and the by is is the small scale X. So it's youth with a capital, small scale X, youth of the capital, dot com. Please do head there and see how you can make a difference to bringing into being the more beautiful world that our hearts do know is possible. And then, as ever, we will be back next week with another conversation. Thanks in the meantime to Cara C for the production and the sound at the head and foot, to Faith Tilleray for the website and all the conversations that keep us moving, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts and... As ever, to you, wherever you are in the world, whatever you are doing, for giving us the time and the attention and for spreading the word. If you know of anybody else who really yearns to be part of this new world that we're bringing into being, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.